Hello, welcome Alan Questel to Awareness in Motion podcast. How are you? I'm very good. I'm happy to see you again. Yes, it feels like just yesterday. Yeah, I think it was actually. And how are you today? Yeah, I'm fantastic. I'm fantastic. And I just want to say, you know, we're here to talk about your awesome book. Uh, it is Random uh, Practice, Random Acts. I mean, intentional acts of kindness, <laughs> like yourself more. And I wanted to say I was reading it last night to my son in bed as we're going to sleep, oh, yeah. and he really liked how you'd crossed out the word random and put intentional. So <laughs> my there's kid. an eight-year-old uh, testimonial for you. <laughs> those, those are the best ones, actually, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, he really loved it. So, And I do like it when... You, a use of a common phrase is used, but it's twisted in some way. Where did you come mm -hmm. up with the name? Well, you know, there's lots of things about random acts of kindness. I even had a bumper sticker on my car years ago about practicing random acts of kindness. And I actually thought, you know, the, the idea of generating kindness. And it's funny because people send me articles all the time about random acts of kindness, and it's great. But there's something when we intentionally go forward practicing mm. acts of kindness instead of just the random moment when they happen, which is great and important. But I think we can kind of really raise our kindness quotient by doing things more intentionally. Mm. So, uh, and then of course it's, Practice intentional acts of kindness and like yourself more. Yes, I'm going to get to that bit. That came out of um, actually a pretty simple thing because I think you know and maybe other listeners know that in most of the contexts where I teach, I talk about liking ourselves more and how can we can foster that in our lives. Mm. And one of the things I realized is that every time I do an act of kindness, I like myself more. So it's, uh, I think, a really potent way to grow ourselves mm. and make other people happy and make ourselves happier too. Mm. It reminds me of a study I heard about where people were given $20 to go and spend and some of them, do you know this one? Uh, no, maybe. Tell me anyway, I can't okay. remember. Okay, so some of them were asked to spend it on themselves and some were asked to, you know, give it to someone or or do something with it and the people that, gave it away, actually had more happiness and felt better about themselves. So Yeah, there's yeah. lots of studies and articles like that. And even in my book, I think I can't remember which chapter it's in, there's a story where I had been given a gift certificate for a store and it wasn't a place I usually shop in and I, I found something I liked, but I still had like $15 or $20 left on the gift certificate. And I'm wandering around just not knowing what to get and I saw this young man and I said, here. And he kind of looked at it and he was shocked and he was so happy because now he had more money to spend. I think most of us feel that way when we give something. Yeah. 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 And you open the book with talking about doing things that make you uncomfortable or well, somewhere that's towards mm. the start. And mm -hmm. you talk about in regards to running a Feldenkrais practice because you are a Feldenkrais trainer and how um often you're, you're talking to practitioners and you're asking them to do things and they're like oh I, I won't do that so yeah. why do you think 
we hold ourselves back from doing those uncomfortable things when we mm-hmm. know they're actually good for us. But <laughs> yeah. Well, I think people like the advice and from that point of view, they might know it's good for them. But I think we're a little hesitant to move outside of the the bubble that we keep themselves in. Mm-hmm. It's like the, the one quote in the book that, that I really like is if you want something you've never had before, you have to do something you've never done before. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I think like in the Feldenkrais method, so much of the focus, I think, at least initially, is on making ourselves more comfortable, making the movements easier, more to our liking. But I don't think that's an accurate evaluation of, of how we need to be in our daily lives. And in fact, I think any real change brings about a level of discomfort to it. And I start with that pretty early on in the book because I think some of the things I ask people to both encounter and practice in themselves can make them uncomfortable. And I know it was true for me. Like, like I think when uh, I was working on the chapter on generosity and playing with the exercises of what you can do on a daily basis, and one was to tip a little bit more when you're in a restaurant or something. And as I was writing it that night, I went out to dinner with friends and I grabbed the check and I think it was probably $70 or something like that. And with the tip, you had another 14, so it was $84 and I had a hundred dollar bill and I went to put it down and I clutched, Mm. like I was uncomfortable. Then I did it. And then the waitress stopped me on the way out and said, you made my night. So I think even the things that I'm suggesting, I had to learn to overcome a certain level of discomfort to do that Mm. still. Yeah. But that's a, it's a worthy place to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And that was my next question. You know, your book is filled with ideas of where to get started. Um, And it's just doing those small things that take you a little bit out of that comfort zone. Then you go into talking about talking um, when you first begin, how can we recognize how kind we are already? Yeah. Yeah. So what's the first first thing people can do to start to realize that they are, they have got kindness in them? Well, that, you know, in in the book, there's a a worksheet and, and um, in that, because it's an interesting place to start. I think most people think, oh, a book about this book is going to teach me how to be kind. And I enter into it with the assumption that you are kind already. And I think that even just to make a list and often, too often, I think people judge their kindness as, well, yeah, but I do that all the time. So it doesn't count Mm. as opposed to saying, wait, every little thing that you do counts and it makes a difference. And we need to, to start with a, um, what's the word, um, uh, a collection of things that we already know how to do and build it from there. Otherwise, if we think we're not kind, then we're already judging ourselves and entering into the process is one that's fraught with a sense of failure and criticism and I'm still not good enough and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think acknowledging that from the very beginning is is important. I, I'll give you a different kind of example of it. I was doing a Feldenkrais lesson with a gentleman today, 
And he was talking, when I went to move his pelvis, he said, oh, it's stiff. And I said, you know, um, I can understand how you might think and feel that, and, but I sense it a different way. When I move your pelvis and it doesn't move, my thought is, you know really well how not to move your pelvis. So we can take even things like that and flip them into a skill and ability that's something we know how to do. And of course, with kindness, <clears throat> I think everyone has at least some inkling of being kind, more than an inkling, but at least some inkling of being kind. And I think that's the better starting place. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I like that you talked about giving someone a functional integration lesson, a Feldenkrais lesson, because that's the next question mm -hmm. I'm looking to dive into. Because you talk about an, in Moshe's Feldenkrais book, Awareness Through Movement, about the self-image and how we act in accordance with our self-image in every action can be understood as some combination of these four components, thoughts, feelings, movement, and sensations. So examining ourselves through this lens gives us a clear understanding of our self-image. Well, why are we talking about self-image in your book around kindness? How does, can you share with the audience yeah, the link? Yeah. So look, we can go back to the earlier question about you may have to do things that make you feel a little uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So, and by the way, it also says that you don't have to do those things now. You can wait till later to do them. You can skip something if it's too uncomfortable. But if I think of doing something that makes me uncomfortable, that's representative of the image that I have of myself. That's outside of my image. Um, and I know that our self-image can change. But in order for it to change, sometimes we have to push the edge of it a little bit. And that's where the discomfort comes from as well. So self-image is, for, I mean, I can give you so many examples of people who from, like, here's another example. So I, I taught a workshop on money and it wasn't about, it was about the concrete aspects of money, but it was also about the feelings that arise around money. And it was at a conference, a Feldenkrais conference, and I had been talking about very, very, having very clear boundaries about what you charge. And this woman who was in the workshop came up to me the next day and said, you know what happened? A client of mine came here and she was supposed to get a lesson from this other practitioner. And she was, she, I had told her one price and it turned out it was more. And I almost was not going to say anything and just pay the difference myself. But I, I, I thought of what we were talking about in the workshop and I decided I'm going to say something. And she did, and the woman just went, oh, okay. So you can see asking for something is outside of our self-image. Sometimes giving something is outside of, and certainly what I've seen in my many people, including myself, that receiving something is outside of our self-image. So then we have to think, well, what's our self-image? It's the definition of how we would describe ourselves on a very simple level, yeah. right? How we think of ourselves. So if I want to be kinder, if I want more kindness towards myself or towards others, that demands that I do something that I maybe haven't done before and have to navigate new territory and get comfortable with it. Because at first it may not be so comfortable. 
Yeah, so true. And I've spoken to this uh, on this topic to other practitioners. We're on that verge, like we want to be comfortable, but in order to grow, we do need to step out of that comfort zone. Yeah. So, um, so we often worry about what other people think about us. Mm. And you talk about this in the book, you know, we can't control what other people think about us. And you're best served by having a greater awareness of your own relationship with kindness than looking to others to measure it. Do you want to talk a bit on that? So it's not just about kindness that we look to others to measure ourselves. Mm. And, and I think that that's, that's a kind of internal growth that comes out of the question or the, the statement of who, who do I want to be? And how do I become that person, mm. right? And and if I'm if I'm really pursuing that actively, the result of it, the success of it, doesn't come from others patting me on the back and saying, "Oh, you've become this person now." It's not based on that. Mm. That's that's our typical way of um, liking ourselves that we use an external representation, right? An external yeah. source that approves of us in some way. And in fact, we need to learn to find an internal way of approving ourselves, of feeling that this is who I want to be and this is what I want to do. And how do I do that? How do I do that? So, and that, look, that's just not true in my book or the things I talk about. I think that's understood in many, many domains that how do we have a sense of inner authority rather than listening to others for approval? So, and look, I would say that all of that comes from practicing something, right? We practice something until we feel some ability towards it, some facility with it, mm. some enjoyment around it, yep. more comfortable with it. And when that happens, I feel better. It's like in the book, you know, I, I do say that, you know, to call ourselves kind is a little tricky. Yeah. It's when others call us kind that we're kind. The same thing with humility. You can't say, I'm a humble person. That does, that's not, that lacks humility even to say something like yes. that, <laughs> right? But if someone says he's humble or he's kind, that's different. But again, it's this edge. I'm not looking outside for that kind of approval but I'm doing actions in my life that make me feel satisfied with who I am. Mm. Yeah. Which brings me to the next question. You know, we've often suppressed feelings. You talk about how as adults we have suppressed our feelings. We're not in, you know, and we reject emotions, displays of emotion. So where do we start to break these learned patterns of seeking this outside validation of, of these and these learned patterns of of squashing our emotions. So I, I think that the, the, the first thing is we have to start really small in a place where we can find success without other people even knowing about it. And not only small, but we have to allow ourselves a lot of time. Like sometimes when I speak with people about changing something, even just changing how you sit, and I say to people, well, they feel a new way of sitting. How long do you think that'll take to change? You know, three weeks. And I laugh. I think, no. The three months? I, no. Stop <laughs> guessing. 
I said, I think it's going to take a year and a half to two years. Now, why do I extend it? That seems like that's a long time to, to have to learn something. But if you think about it, most of the things we do, we've learned over a long period of time. So the apprenticeship wasn't three weeks to learn something. It was months, if not years, to do something. And if we think a year and a half, after six months of practicing something, I go, oh, I'm not there yet, but I have another year. And after a year, I'm still not there. I have another six months. And that makes it a little more spacious. And I tell the story in the book about the thing that I learned to do one thing well, which was to brush my teeth well. Finding something as simple as that, that I could, I have to practice, supposedly, I'm supposed to practice every day, a couple of times a day, right? And so that if I'm doing that better and better each time, at one point I cross the threshold where I go, yeah, I'm pretty good at doing that. And that is the beginning of succeeding in anything. Because it's not about these huge, tremendous successes. It's about a little success so I know what that feel, feeling feels like. It's like, you know, you, you speak to many people who've had businesses and they lost their businesses and they built another one and they lost. And it's like they know how to do it because they did it before. Mm. There's an internal representation of what it means to succeed. And starting small, giving yourself a lot of time and being patient I don't know if it's the only way, but I would say right now, from my point of view, it's the best way. Yeah. Mm. I like this. We're, we're segueing into the questions that I'm going to ask next. Maybe you you know what I'm going to ask you. No, but keep going. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> oh, good. So you talk about a practitioner who announced to you uh, that she didn't want to start teaching the Feldenkrais method or talking about it until she was she clearly understood it. And I had to uh -huh. laugh at that when I read that. Like I hear that from, from like a lot of us do leave the, our training and don't feel satisfactory, don't uh -huh. feel like we've got anything to teach, and it holds us back. And I know that's why a lot of practitioners may not invest in marketing their practice and moving themselves forward. And so that's wrapped up in that feeling of self-worth and um. Would you like to talk a little bit on that? Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I would speak about it from two points of view. One, I would call that situation, the it's, a, it's part of the adult dilemma. The adult dilemma is I should be good at something before I've ever done it before. Mm. So whatever it is I'm teaching, whatever context I'm teaching in, people have an internal expectation of being good when they've never done it before, which is kind of cuckoo. I mean, I've done that. I think we've all done that to some degree. So that's one aspect of it that really um, prevents us from moving forward. And now there's another side to it too, which is a sense of confidence. But now we have to go back to what we were just talking about, the idea of doing a simple thing well, a simple thing, brushing your teeth. I mean, it sounds like yeah, yeah, let's move on to the big stuff. But in fact, that is the big stuff. Because if I can start to feel an inkling of success there, that's where it can be, that seed can be planted into any other thing that I want to do well, but I'm a little impatient or think I should already be good at it. 
And it's funny because children, at what point does that change? It's, it's not a particular age. It's different for different mm. kids. But most kids, when you give them something, they're just having fun trying to figure something out and do it. Mm. And when they get frustrated, they may stop. Or some kids have a longer attention span and stay with it more. But most of them put it down and come back to it. And they don't sit there going, what's wrong with me? Why can't I do this? I'm six years old. I should be able to draw better than this. I mean, it's it's a silly kind of idea. And a kid would just be like, if, if we did that in front of them, they'd say, why, why? They wouldn't understand why we're upset. Mm. It would be a puzzle to them. And, you know, we all learn to do that. And certainly most of our educational systems foster that mm. in not a great way. So, so I would say there needs to be a, 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 um, an environment where confidence can develop. And we need to realize that our expectations that we have towards about ourselves are too often a bit unrealistic. Mm. Yeah. Which brings me to this next point. We're often too hard on ourselves, too judgmental, too unforgiving. I'm quoting you from the book here, too critical. Yeah. Um, we expect the best from ourselves. And, you know, this is a habitual learning pattern as adults. Where do you think that came from? Huh. Well, I, I don't think I've been in a culture that doesn't have that. Mm. In South America, Asia, North America, Europe, Australia, New Zealand. I mean, it's like every, I can't say everyone. Most people have become adults with that in the background. And, and I'll, I'll talk about it in, a, in another way that – so we, we have a concept of learning right, of, of learning how to do something. So here I have a new skill. I want to learn how to do it, and I'm struggling with it and thinking I'm not good enough and everyone is better than me and all of that. And either I give up or I push myself through it in a way that I'm kind of miserable by the time I actually am able to do it. Mm -hmm. So there's no happiness in that. But underneath that process of learning is something we can call how we've learned how to learn. And those are unconscious learning strategies that we've all learned, different ones, some of the same things, that we bring to any learning context. And they look like, I'm, I'm going to be the best one at this. That's a strategy that people come into a, a learning situation with. Or everyone's smarter than me already. Mm. Or they're doing better. Or all the comparisons that we make externally that lacks the internal guidance and understanding of maybe I need more time. Maybe I need to stop for a while. And the thing is th that those strategies of how we've learned how to learn, they're hard to come by because we're so engaged in the success of learning something. Mm -hmm. So that's why the extended time, something small, allows us to be open to these unconscious things that maybe become more conscious so we can go, oh, I'm doing that again. Yeah. You know, and it's like, huh, how do I interrupt my process? And that's that that statement there of how do I interrupt my process is one of the hardest things to do in anything. Because we're so forwardly engaged that that pause for a moment to catch us ourselves is really tricky. You know, but we can do it. 
Once yeah. we become aware of this as an idea, we can start doing it. No, like, you know, I talk in the book about my mantras and the, 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 the one where I was coming back from Europe and I was tired working for a month. And I started, I was on a plane. I started thinking about all the things I had to do. I got completely overwhelmed and I caught it. And that in that moment, I, I asked myself the question, is this a good time to be thinking about this? And the answer was no. As a matter of fact, whenever I catch myself, even that I have to ask that question, the answer is no, it's not a good time. Yeah. And again, it's creating more space, but that's a good example of me interrupting my own internal habits around learning. Mm. So we all do I was actually going to talk about that next. So yeah. I know you were going to do that. Are you jumping into my computer here and reading <laughs> my notes? <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I really like that idea. I often teach my clients, as you know, I teach online marketing. I say compartmentalize your different things you need to do in your business. One day is your creative day. One day is your technology mm -hmm. or however you want to set mm -hmm. it. Don't try and do them together. <laughs> And if something comes up that you would love to dive into, but it's not that time, put it aside for that time. Makes sense. Yeah. And then you talk, you went, you go on to talk about how, you know, children pay attention to, to themselves. And if they sit in colouring in, you said with crayons, um, they'll they'll adjust themselves because they're cons consistently listening into their body. And we as adults have lost this ability. Of course, as Feldenkrais students and practitioners, we know how to start listening to our bodies. What about those people that are listening to this podcast or watching the video now and asking, mm -hmm. you know, where can I get started with the small mm -hmm. thing? You're talking about yeah. started small. Well, the, the, it's, it's, it's really one very simple place, and, and that's looking or seeking a little bit of pleasure in the way that you move. Yeah. And some of us, like if I ask people, where do you experience pleasure in, let's say, in movement in your body? And they'll say playing an instrument or dancing or having sex or playing with my grandchildren. And they'll name a number. Some people say sleeping or eating. And I say, well, okay, look, if we added up all those hours in a day, you'd probably be lucky to get three hours of pleasure. You'd be lucky to yeah. get three hours. So what are you doing the rest of the day? You know, if, if you're sleeping, let's say eight hours, you've got 16 hours, that leaves 13 hours of what? Not feeling comfortable? Or even the idea of feeling comfortable. It's like, this, this to me is like, when I ask this, I love asking this question because people are so like this. And I said, when do you get comfortable? And the typical answer is, oh, I get comfortable when I'm uncomfortable. So that means you have to wait till you're uncomfortable to get comfortable. That's cuckoo. Yeah. And that's what a child drawing doesn't do. They don't wait. They start to sense they're in the direction of being less comfortable, and then they adjust themselves and make themselves more comfortable again. Yeah. But we can do it just from our desks at work where we go, I'm not suggesting we're looking every moment to feel that way, but, oh, I'm going to the bathroom. I'm going to get a cup of coffee. Can I, in the action of going there, kind of feel I'm going to move in a little bit more pleasurable way? You know, and, and whether that's an internal feeling 
of dancing or just going a little slower or going faster, that we start practicing everyday moments that have a little bit more pleasure associated with them. I think that's the easiest way to start, mm. really. You know, well, my my place where I like to start practicing feeling pleasure is doing the chores that I have to do, like washing the dishes, mopping the floor. <laughs> How can I do this with more fun and pleasure? And yeah, yeah, driving. You know, so well, if you can find it in those movements. That's a high degree of success because <laughs> yeah. you know the things that people call kind of drudgery or have to, the things you have to do. It's like, gee, if I can find a little pleasure in that, that's a yeah. huge difference. Huge. Although I would, I would side note, I've outsourced a lot of it to the boys now. <laughs> <laughs> are you teaching them to enjoy it? You guys are going to love this. <laughs> yeah. We'll try to. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, so a chapter in the book is devoted to how to start with just five minutes a day, which we've been leading to and you've been saying throughout. So... Um, that is a great place to start. And then also talking about the tough love to break these habits on yourself. Mm -hmm. Do you want to share a little yeah. bit about your thoughts around the tough love? <laughs> tough love is a tricky one. You know, I, I find that in many conversations with people, the act of saying no is hard. People don't like saying no. And they think if they say no, that they're being unkind. Mm. And there's two levels to that. One is, if I don't say no, and I just agree with something that I'm not happy about, then I'm not being very kind to myself. I'm putting myself in a position where I'm unhappy because I wanted to say I didn't want to do something and now I'm doing it and I wish I didn't. And so that, that isn't kind to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And then to our friends and our family, Sometimes saying no is a good response. Mm. If, God forbid, we have a friend or family member who's, who's an alcoholic, and we know that the alcohol isn't good for them, and to be able to say, no, I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to lend you money to go out and buy something to drink. Mm. Oh, what do you mean? I'm not, it's fine. No, because I know I'm not going to be happy with who you are when you're like that, and if I do give it to you, I'm going to regret it and wish that I hadn't done something like that. And that, I mean, the expression tough love doesn't come from nowhere. No. You know, we realize that there are certain things we have to do that are uncomfortable for us to do, mm. right? So there's a good example of winding back to the state of doing something that's a little uncomfortable for ourselves, right? Mm. But in the end, now here's the thing. How do we get comfortable doing those things? And there's only one way, and that's by practicing it again and again and again, not avoiding the moments and saying, well, next time I'll say no to the person, but taking a deep breath and kind of settling in for a moment and saying no, but to say no with kindness, with affection, with love, not, with, not that kind of no. Mm. That, that's not so helpful. They feel, people feel cut off from that. And, and it's not, we usually don't feel good about ourselves when we do that either. So to, to be able, you know, years ago when I was younger, I was, the, 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 the title I was given by many of my teachers and other people was aggressive. 
and aggressive, and it didn't have a positive tone to it. Mm. For me, my aggression just felt like I had a clear intention and I was going to fulfill it. But then I did a workshop with a poet named Robert Bly. And as a result of that workshop, I walked away thinking, ah, I can be thoughtfully aggressive. That's different. Mm. It doesn't mean that I can't be aggressive, but my aggression was tinged with harsher feelings, harsher attitudes. But I, if I do it thoughtfully, I can move forward pretty well. The same thing with tough love. It's mm. like it's the place we're coming from that makes a difference, mm. not only in how we enact it, but in how people hear it. Yeah. And over time, I think people respect it and are grateful for it as well. Mm. And I would add something else there that there needs to be a high degree of reversibility and honesty with ourselves that I can say, well, I tried this tough love thing and I'm finding out it's not working. I need to find a different track, a different way of doing it. And so there's no fault in that. There's no failure in that. That's just, I did something. I did my best. Didn't work. Let me do something else. So, Which you do give more ways to, to work on changing these aspects of yourself. And I want to talk about your Zen teacher, um, Roshi. Kwong, is that how you? Kwong Roshi. Kwong Roshi. Okay. So he talked about, you know, um, changing aspects of yourself can feel like an aggression towards ourselves. And so you talk about rather than changing, but adding to what you're already doing. Mm. So instead of trying to eliminate something, but add to it. And you've got a beautiful process in the book. So if anyone's listening and you haven't read the book, you've got to go read this. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? <laughs> so the act of a, the desire to change can be seen as an act of aggression towards ourselves. And you can hear it when people say, I hate this about myself, or I wish I was this. And it's not just the words of strong, hate's a strong word. God forbid we hate ourselves. But it's the attitude and the tone that we bring to it. And I've seen people who wanted, if they could, they would cut out that part of themselves, which is a violent act. Why would we cut out anything that's us? In fact, the place that get, the place that we're in where we realize I don't like myself or these things about myself and I want to change them is the result of those things. That we need those things. They're, they're, I wouldn't go so far. They might, we, some people might see it. Those are my teachers. That might be extreme. But those were planted on the journey to get here. If I'm here now, those things are part of it. I can't eliminate the past. I can't change anything in the past. Mm. All I can do is deal with what I'm doing right now and mm. see how do I affect that. And of course, if you think of it in terms of our attention, if I'm trying to get rid of something, I attach myself to it. I always have to know where it is, right? But if I think, where do I want to go towards? You know, when I work with people privately in Feldenkrais, and they tell me all their issues, and if they have pain, they tell me all about that. And one question I always ask is, what would you like to be better at? And sometimes they'll say, well, I'd like to not have pain in my neck. I say, good, that's important, I agree. But that's something you want to get away from. 
what do you want to move towards? And that is a huge shift in perspective that, first of all, it's positive and it doesn't connect us to the negative aspects of ourselves. And that's the place where we can start to grow ourselves more and end up with the self-image that's still made up of the past and the things I didn't like, but everything else has gotten bigger to the point where I feel like, huh, I like myself more. That's a, that's a pretty cool place to be. Yeah. 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 So I wanted to end on something you said about, yeah, stop judging ourselves so much and embrace who you are. And then from there, with your acknowledgement of who you are, being aware of your self-image, you can start to embrace more things that you want to change. Yeah. So I agree with that statement. Maybe it's even something I wrote. I don't know. but. How do we not judge ourselves? How do we embrace ourselves as we are? What those sound like to me, just as they are separate like that, are mantras, which can be really useful. But that's not the same thing as changing our actions. So how do I embrace myself more? I need to act in a different way. How do I like myself more? I need to do something, do something active, not just think about it, not just hope for it. And all of those things, anything that anyone says, me or anyone else, that has a tinge of mantra associated with it, it needs to be connected to, well, what actions can I do that over time will change my attitudes towards others and towards myself? And I can think of no greater place to practice it than kindness, because acts of kindness are valued everywhere in every culture, in an animal kingdom, it's valued, you know? So that's, that's our jobs for now on. That's what I think. Yeah. I honestly be believe this book can change the world. Uh, well, we'll start with one person at a time. <laughs> yes, one person at a time. So if you're listening, yeah. go read the book. Um, I'll put the links in the show notes. And when you read the book, pass it to the next person. <laughs> Yeah. Buy one for the next person. That's even better, yeah. <laughs> so you can keep yours to refer to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So lovely talking to you today, Alan. Is there any last words you'd like to share with the audience? No, it was great talking with you too. And uh, I, I just, uh, I, I'd say last words, I'd say I hope you'll join me and many, many others on this journey for now on of being kinder towards ourselves and others in concrete, meaningful ways. Yeah, just beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and